Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. So we have a lot of hummingbirds around here in our Southern California desert neighborhood, and one of them got stuck and disoriented in our open garage the other day. Remember that, Lori? Yeah. So this uh, poor little guy just couldn't figure out that the opening straight ahead was where he should go. He kept on wanting to go up, and I did a little reading about hummingbirds and learned that that's their natural instinct. They're not used to being closed in, and when they need to escape, they, they go up. And so it's a real treacherous situation for a hummingbird because they need to eat almost continuously. So you need to take an object like a broom or a rake. I saw a YouTube of that, and you just hold it underneath the hummingbird and allow the hummingbird to perch there and then gently just walk them outside so they can fly away. And eventually the hummingbird will get tired enough that he wants to take a little rest and will just perch right on this little object. So that's a good tip to help the hummingbird get out of your open garage. The other thing that I recently learned is that if you've got a motorized garage door that's built anytime in the past few decades, chances are it has an emergency handle in case the power goes off and you need to get out. And this is a red color handle by law. And the hummingbirds are attracted to this. They think, they think it contains nectar. So you want to get rid of this red colored object either by painting it or wrapping it with electrical tape, black electrical tape, so it doesn't attract the hummingbird in the first place. So that was our recent little hummingbird experience, and it made us wonder what are some other things that you can do like around the house to help the wildlife that's sharing your neighborhood, right? Yeah. Well, one thing you can do is be sparing or even eliminate the use of pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals in your home and landscaping. Many chemicals used outdoors to kill certain insects also harm birds and insects that can be beneficial to us as well, like bees and butterflies. So I would say use as few chemicals in the outdoors as possible, right? You know, I've had some experience, you've smelled it with some of these products that are based on essential oils. They're very pungent. The insects don't like them at all, and they uh, are non-toxic. And never use rodenticides. Using poison bait to control rodents will always secondarily poison the raptors and other predators that eat the sick rodents. And there are many other humane alternatives to control rodents that are bothering you. Right. Another one, Peter, never feed wild mammals such as deer, raccoons, coyotes, obviously bears, right? Right. You know, where I used to live, I had a neighbor that would put cat food out for the raccoons. Well, raccoons can also attack and kill small dogs and cats. And they can carry rabies. So feeding these wild animals teaches them to be dependent on humans and they end up losing their, their uh, fear of humans. They're more likely to come into conflict with people and conflict with people almost always ends up being a bad situation for the animals. Right. On a similar note, put garbage and your litter in garbage cans. Food scraps by the side of the road can attract wildlife, which can get, then get hit by cars. And of course, if you are in bear country, you've got to abide by the local regulations about how to dispose of your trash when bears are around. They're very clever. Here's another one, Peter. Keep your dogs on leash when walking in open spaces or in areas where certain birds might be nesting. And in our area, a lot of which is designated bighorn sheep habitat, there are hiking trails and you're not supposed to bring your dogs because even if you don't see the sheep, they know the dogs are out there and it really messes up their mating rituals. 
So don't be a selfish dog guardian and just leave your dog at home if you're hiking near any of those trails. Good point. And finally, Peter, we've talked about this before. On When you're on vacation, be a smart souvenir shopper. Don't buy illegal or protected wildlife. Right, Lori. And you may run up against this in Southeast Asia where shells from uh, endangered tortoises may be uh, sold and other parts of animals that are just not legal to sell. So use caution. For more information on this, you can visit the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service travel and trade page or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wildfire fauna and flora, CITES, CITES, for more information, right? Now, you said finally before, but I'm going to say more finally okay. is the following bird follow-up point, okay? Please do. So when we moved into the current house, there's a fair amount of glass around this house, and we kept on hearing this banging, and it was basically the birds flying right into the glass windows. Oh, I hate that. Very disturbing, and uh, you'd send me out, and I'd see a stunned bird right on the ground, and sometimes... He or she would fly away, and other times it was just too much of an impact. So we went out and got these bird decals that were specially made, and uh, we bought a bunch of them, and they are supposed to have some optical property. Well, they were shaped like birds and flowers, but they were supposed to have some property that uh, encouraged the birds not to fly right into the window. It didn't work as well as it should, and it wasn't our final solution, and after about... Uh, three to five months, I would say, they started turning brown and ugly, and I had to scrape them off. Remember that? You didn't do the scraping. <laughs> I was the scraper. And but so we replaced them. with. We replaced them. We had a better solution that I want to share, and that is the window film. These come in rolls or sheets, and they're very large, much larger, larger than the decals, and they are designed to put over a large part of a window to obscure it so people can't look in your house. They come in beautiful little patterns, many different kinds, and you get one of these for... 20 bucks or something like that, a big roller sheet, and you just cut them up, and then you apply them wherever you need. Much better solution. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. Check us out at animalstodayradio.com, where you can listen to any of our prior shows over the last seven and a half years. Check us out, animalstodayradio.com. I want to now welcome back to the show Darlene Kababel. She is the president of the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Welcome back to the show, Darlene. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Darlene, a few years ago, we interviewed a gentleman who rescued wolf-dog hybrids, and he was very strongly against that practice of breeding them or or creating them. How Mm -hmm. big a problem is wolf-dog hybrids these days, and does the center have a position on them? And, you know, to me, these individuals, irresponsible individuals, if you ask me, who want their dog to have a little wolf in them. It's really fraught with risks, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It can be, and that's that's a topic that is, it can be very controversial in so many ways, and our stance pretty much is wolves should be wolves and dogs should be dogs. And the reason for that is because so many so many problems, a lot of people have uh, problems sometimes owning an, just a domestic dog, let alone owning one that may have some wolf in it, and then it starts to have some wolf behavior, and then it gets out of control, and then that you know that person or that family can't take care of that animal for whatever reason, and now they need to find a home for it. And the the problem with finding a home for it is, um, first of all, if they do take it to any shelter, uh, and you open your mouth and say, I have a wolf, and you use that word wolf, wolf dog, wolf hybrid, um, within 24 to 48 hours, they, they usually will euthanize that animal because a lot of 
states, a lot of counties uh, are not allowed to adopt them out mm. for one reason or the other, depending on you know where you're at. And a lot of people call them wolf hybrids. That's actually an incorrect term. It's actually wolf dog because a hybrid wouldn't technically be able to reproduce. So the the proper word is a wolf dog, uh, but a lot of people do call them wolf wolf hybrids. So I'm gonna I'm going to relate to them as a wolf dog. Um, and it is estimated at 250,000 that are born year uh, every year. 80% won't even reach their third birthday. And there again, the reason for that, because uh, some people can't deal with them for one reason or another, and like I said earlier, they take them to a shelter, or they try to find a sanctuary. The, the problem with sanctuaries is every single sanctuary in the United States is full beyond capacity. And, I mean, look at your dog rescues out there right. and, and, you know, your shelters and your humane societies and, and non-kill shelters or whatever. They're full because we have a lot of, unfortunately, irresponsible people in a disposable society to where they can't, you know, they don't, ha- something happens in their life and, oh, just give it away or, or take it to, get rid of that problem and, and you know, life goes on. And uh, so many wonderful, wonderful animals that are euthanized every single year because somebody didn't take the responsibility uh, when adopting that animal, buying that animal, whatever. Um, So with the wolf dog, it is very popular because a lot of people like to own a piece of the wild. Or if you look at the wolf dogs or the wolves, they're beautiful, majestic animals. So sometimes people want to have that little bit of wild, you know, next to them. You can buy these animals anywhere from a few hundred all the way to a few thousand depending on who the breeder is and how much money they want to make out of it. And I've seen such exotic mixes that's like, oh, my gosh, that animal's been extinct for, you know, <laughs> that buffalo wolf for X amount of years or whatever, but the more exotic that they can put a title on it, the more money they can make out of these animals. The only true, true way to really find out if your, your wolf dog has wolf uh, traits is to do a DNA test. What happens is, say, if someone does get a true wolf dog, has a lot of wolf behavior to it, um, they oh, I'll raise it as a puppy, and it'll become a house dog. It's still a wild animal. That's the problem. Back, and then all of a sudden, now you've got this vicious animal, and then the wolf gets a bad name. Darlene, just like having an exotic animal as a pet, I feel it's unfair and almost inhumane to have a wolf dog hybrid as a pet. I mean, you just don't know how much internal confusion, if you will, these animals are experiencing. They have wild characteristics. They have domesticated characteristics. They must experience some level of confusion as to what they are and how they should behave. You know, you're so right on that. If it's still part wolf, truly part wolf, they need space. They need hiding places. They, they have instincts that you're taking that away from them, right? And it's, it is that, too. They can become neurotic. Uh, they can, you'll see them to where they do neurotic behaviors um, because they're stuck. They're, they have no natural, you know, mental stimulation. And, and without that, it's, that, is, that is cruel. Yeah, it's bad enough that we have these breeders out there breeding purebred dogs and designer dogs at a time when our shelters are at maximum capacity and at a time when we're killing five to six million dogs and cats every year in our country's shelters. So now we have these same sort of selfish individuals breeding for profit, creating an animal whose genes are a mixture of wild and domesticated and we're, and we're creating an animal that we're really not sure how content or happy their lives will be. And as you mentioned, many of which will end up being relinquished to a shelter where they will automatically be euthanized or they'll just be abandoned or dumped. Darlene Kababel, president of Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center, thank you so much. Thank you.
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. The California-based organization Animal Place has and is growing a campaign we really like and support. Founded in 1989, Animal Place provides permanent sanctuary education legislation and appropriate placement of needy animals, especially farmed animals. It has two facilities, a 600-acre sanctuary in Grass Valley, California, that welcomes visitors, and the Rescue Ranch, which is a 60-acre animal shelter and rehabilitation facility not open to the public in Vacaville, California. Today, we are going to be talking about the Food for Thought campaign with Patty Nyman, intern volunteer and campaigns manager at Animal Place. Welcome, Patty. Thanks for having me. Did I describe uh, Animal Place uh, accurately there? Yes, absolutely. The Food for Thought campaign, like I said, we've admired it uh, and been following it for years now. What is it? So our Food for Thought program is primarily a shelter outreach program. Uh, So we work with animal and also now environmental nonprofits to encourage them to adopt board-approved animal-friendly and earth-friendly menu policies for sponsored events. Uh, So the basic idea is that we're asking these organizations to take animals off the plate at events that they're hosting in order to save more lives. Um, So we're asking them to adopt a policy that incorporates, you know, care for farmed animals into their actual organizational mandates. Like an official policy, like approved by their boards. Exactly, yeah. The goal is really those formal board-approved policies so that we're encouraging institutional change. We're encouraging them to incorporate compassionate compassion for farmed animals right into, um, you know, their, their policies. And that way, if there's staff turnover over time or, you know, there's any kind of discussions around this issue, they have a policy in place which has been, you know, approved by the board and that way they'll create that lasting change going forward. What are the uh, top reasons why nonprofits uh, should adopt a menu policy like this? Well, the first one that we normally raise is to act in accordance with your mission. So rescues are driven by their mission, typically to reduce animal suffering. And today, farming animals is very unnecessary. We know it causes immense suffering to these animals. And so because they deserve to be protected from cruelty as much as cats or dogs, we're asking these organizations who usually already have missions like compassion for all animals or protecting all species um, to act in accordance with those missions um, when it comes down to the actual food that they serve at events. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Um, Another reason is to show humane leadership. So the public expects animal protection organizations to set the bar when it comes to humane standards. And they're receiving a mixed message when these organizations are putting some species on the menu at an event that's meant to help other species. And that kind of ties into another reason, which is to practice responsible donation use. So animal nonprofits are acting with integrity when they're using donations in the service of their mission to help animals. And by buying plant-based foods, they're, you know, using those donations in an ethically consistent way. Um, And they're also being more inclusive. Events that are plant-based 
in, include everybody. Everyone can eat the food. Everyone can enjoy the food. And they get to say that they're helping the most animals by doing that. And then there's also the added benefits, um, you know, for the environment, for wildlife. We know that animal agriculture is one of the largest sources of greenhouse gases worldwide. It causes habitat fragmentation, results in the loss of biodiversity, um, and so forth. And so it also has that added benefit of protecting wildlife and the planet. Now, you've conducted polling and have data to uh, support some of these ideas, don't you? Yeah, we've found that when we've polled some of our supporters, we found that the public generally does support the move toward vegan policies for organizations. And we've also found that organizations themselves are pretty willing to make this step. It's definitely, there are some challenges, um, but we've found that many are at the very least interested in learning more of how they can, you know, take steps in this direction. Do you find any difference between organizations that are uh, affiliated with a, with government or county shelters or SPCAs versus uh, others that act independently in their ability or willingness to uh, come on board? Yeah, we have. We found that the groups that are government-run or county shelters tend to be less receptive to the idea of adopting a menu policy, in part because their governance is less independent, but also because they tend to host fewer fundraising events. Um, so we're looking for groups that, you know, humane societies, rescues, that do a lot of events that invite the public in. And so those groups tend to be more receptive than the ones who have fewer events and then have more restrictions when it comes to, you know, creating policies for the organization. Okay, so I hate to say the word or the phrase, but there are report cards. What are what are they? We have, I should just say, start by saying that we have four coordinators working on this campaign across the country. So each coordinator is representing a different region and reaching out to all of the animal organizations that they can find in that region. And so we have a database of 5,000 or more groups at this point, and we wanted to make some of that data public. Uh, so what we did was instead of just publicizing these, you know, internal databases, we decided to make a report card available to the public to show individuals where their local groups stand on this issue. So we've created a grading scheme um, for menu policies. So an A is a vegan board-approved policy, a B is a vegetarian board-approved policy, C is an informal policy, and so forth. And we're assigning those grades to all of the groups that we're reaching out to and then publicizing that information on our website. So this allows advocates to go in and check where their group stands and then contact them and try to make a change. It allows groups to go in and see where their peers stand. Um, So it works as an incentive for groups to make changes and also as a way for advocates to gauge where their local groups stand on the issue. Mm-hmm. And grants are available. Tell us about the grant program. We're trying to make it as easy and enticing as possible for groups to adopt policies. Due to you know the donations that we receive for this campaign, uh, we are able to provide a grant to groups who adopt new policies. Um, so we have a group, uh, sorry, a grant for sheltering groups. Um, it's a $250 one-time grant for any group that adopts a new policy. And we also have a, gr- a grant for wildlife and environmental groups, which is provided by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Well, that's just fabulous. Okay, uh, Patty Nyman, any uh, final thoughts as we uh, wrap this up? The campaign is called Food for Thought, and it comes out of Animal Place. Yeah, so we have, at this point, the campaign is always growing. We have over 300 groups who have endorsed the program, um, and we're always creating new resources to make it easier. So we have an organizational toolkit meant for staff within organizations who want to make changes. They can find sample policy language, testimonials from shelter executives, 
a guide to throwing their first veg event, how to get vegan product donations, all of that. And then we also have a new advocate toolkit. So individuals who want to get involved with the program are encouraged to visit our website. It's foodforthoughtcampaign.org. And there you'll find an advocate toolkit with sample letters to shelter staff um, and other resources that are helpful for individual advocates who are interested in getting involved. That's Patty Nyman with Animal Place. The website of the program is foodforthoughtcampaign.com. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week, we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That website again is aianimals.org. Your Animals Today tip of the day is about urine spraying by cats. Spraying is a way for cats to mark their territory. Spraying is mainly a trait found in male cats, but females will also mark when they are in heat. Of course, in house cats, it's quite undesirable, but fixing your cat is the best way to correct this problem. Litter box issues are another common cause of unwanted spraying. But if the behavior persists, ask your veterinarian to make sure there are no other medical problems present. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. Welcome back to the show. Well, there is an interesting story developing out of Texas where the Texas Beef Council is urging medical professionals to recommend beef to patients with heart disease. Uh, That's right. Well, this uh, caught the attention of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Uh, They follow this sort of thing very carefully. And as you probably know, they have been uh, working very hard to end the use of animals in uh, many arenas. Therefore, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. John Pippin back to the show. It's been a little bit. He is Director of Academic Affairs with PCRM, and it's very nice to speak with him. Hello, John. Hello, Peter. It's great to be back after a little while. We are going to get to the story out of Texas and the Texas Beef Council, but I thought I'd give you the opportunity to tell us what uh, PCRM, we follow you guys very closely, what you've been uh, doing and achieving uh, recently. Peter, we've been involved in a variety of uh, efforts ranging from encouraging best nutritional practices, which for us is plant-based diet, Uh, encouraging ethical practices both in medical um, training and education and in um, other aspects of um, life, and also working specifically to find win-win solutions to uh, the continued use of animals in a variety of uh, medical education and training um, venues. And um, I'll start by saying we have worked for years since I joined as a uh, campaign leader with the Physicians Committee back in 2005. Uh, we have worked very hard to get animals out of the training of medical students in medical schools. And long story short, um, as of uh, 2016, the very last 
medical school in the United States and Canada ended its use of animals for that purposes. And we're um, happy and um, a little bit proud to say that uh, now um, there is no use of animals in any aspect of the training and education of medical students in either the United States or Canada. This was codified in an article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, last year, 2017, um, where they actually uh, credited the Physicians Committee with achieving this goal. So that was huge, um, both for what it uh, did for both education and um, animals, but also as an example of what can be achieved um, once, uh, once you realize that the very best training uh, also is training that does not involve animals. We've also been involved with some uh, postgraduate training programs, uh, residency programs, um, trying to do the same thing. Now, in pediatrics residency programs uh, in the United States, um, out of the 208 programs, uh, we're also glad to say that none of them is using animals now to train pediatrics residents. Uh, physicians in pediatric medicine are going through their graduate training, so that also is a uh, complete sweep. We're doing the same thing in anesthesiology uh, residencies and um, of 150 anesthesiology residencies in the United States and Canada, only one is currently using animals for training and that's a military program uh, at Fort Sam Houston, Texas and we're continuing to uh, work on that program. So we're very close to um, having a clean sweep in anesthesiology. We've also more recently taken on emergency medicine residency programs in the U.S. And as you might imagine, that's a, a little bit tougher because when you begin talking about urgent life-saving procedures, there's a bit more resistance to giving up the use of animals because that's what they're accustomed to. Of 212 programs uh, in the United States, uh, more than 90%, currently 92%, um, are not using animals. There are still some emergency medicine programs uh, we have not surveyed, but uh, it's encouraging to find that um, with the efforts we've made to convert some programs, now 92% of the programs are not using animals. And the two related areas, advanced trauma life support training and paramedic training, first responder uh, training for advanced trauma life support training out of 309 programs in the United States and Canada, all but two are not using animals. So there again, we have a few programs we haven't surveyed, but that's 99% of, of programs um, not using animals. And for the paramedic training programs, you know, those um, uh, men and women who show up often with fire department and are the first people to encounter uh, folks under urgent care circumstances. We surveyed all 140 paramedic programs in the Western United States and Texas, and we found only two uh, who were using animals. One of them we uh, were able to convert, and the other one we recently heard from is has offered a 
um, a phase out of animal use that would occur within the next couple of years. And at that point, there will be no paramedic programs in the western half of the United States or Texas using animals. So uh, I, I go through that litany of things to show your listeners that this kind of work over a period of time um, does succeed, and we're going to continue to do this. And, and our goal, and we feel we're going to reach it, is to end all animal use in these kinds of uh, medical and trauma training programs. Now, I would presume that these programs are able to find substitutes for training that are equivalent or perhaps uh, better. Does PCRM uh, develop any of the alternative technologies or methods? Uh, that's a great uh, question. Yes, they have. Um, they have discovered or, or have confirmed for their own purposes that simulation and the use of human cadavers in various kinds of uh, modified simulation situations are not only are not just equivalent to, but actually superior for training purposes. That's documented not only in their own experience, but in the uh, peer-reviewed literature. And the reasons are that the anatomy is um, uh, faithful, as opposed to the anatomy of a pig or um, a goat or some other large animal. Um, and the training methods employed using simulation allow repetition and iterative learning, mm -hmm. uh, which is not possible with animals who, of course, typically die during the training or are uh, always uh, killed after the training. So uh, no one has been bullied, shall we say, into changing. No. Uh, no program, uh, no university program or institutional program training physicians is going to make a change like this unless they are, con uh, unless they are convinced that it is a superior approach. And that's why with virtually all of the, in virtually all of these areas, we are not only ending animal use, uh, we're also improving the training of uh, physicians and medical students and, and paramedics. Well, that's fabulous. Congratulations, and we continue to follow this. Now, let's move to the mischief that the Texas Beef Council is involved in. What's going on there? Well, um, like any sort of um, business-driven interest, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or device manufacturers or food producers, um, there's always an effort to enhance their uh, business success, um, I'll just come out and say it, regardless of the methods necessary and regardless in many cases of any harm that may be done to their clients or customers. And that's what we believe the Texas Beef Council is doing. They are sending printed materials to physicians and to uh, the public and encouraging physicians to distribute to their patients uh, printed materials, um, encouraging patients to eat beef, they say, as part of a, a healthful diet that can help lower cholesterol. Of course, that's nonsense. Um, it's a lie. And we got word of it from some of our um, observant members in Texas, and we picked up on it. And we have filed a complaint to the Texas Attorney General in February of this year, 
charging the Texas Beef Council with violation of the uh, Texas Deceptive Trade Practices and Consumer Protection Act um, in order, uh, in other words, uh, perpetrating a fraud on uh, physicians and uh, citizens uh, in Texas. And they used a, quote, research study, unquote, you'll see why I have it in quotes in a minute, to bolster their argument. And in that study, they compared a diet that's um, popular, the DASH diet, to uh, different diets containing beef products. And they claimed that the diets containing beef products had similar results in terms of cholesterol levels that the DASH diet had, and they use that information to encourage people to eat beef. If you actually read the study they did, first of all, everyone involved in the study was either an employee or paid by the Texas Beef Council or the National um, uh, Beef Agencies, uh, National Beef Producing Agencies. Secondly, what they did is compare their beef diets, one was called Bold and the other was called Bold Plus, to a diet, the DASH diet, that that doesn't control cholesterol at all. It only controls blood pressure. Uh, They cherry-picked a diet for comparison that is not a cholesterol diet. And then in their Bold and Bold Plus diets, uh, which they claim showed similar cholesterol results to the to the DASH diet. And Dr. Pippin, hold on. We need to go to a quick break. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel speaking with uh, Dr. John Pippin from PCRM. More after the break. to Animals Today. I'm Peter Spiegel and we're speaking with Dr. John Pippin from PCRM. He is Director of Academic Affairs and we are continuing our discussion uh, regarding the Texas Beef Council's uh, funny interpretation of uh, some uh, scientific data as part of their uh, new policy recommending beef to, uh, to patients. Hi, Dr. Pippin. Hi, Peter. Okay, so uh, continue with your analysis if you would. Um, All right, we were discussing how the Texas Beef Council um, jerry-rigged this uh, study to try to make it look better than it is. And the first thing they did is, uh, compared to a diet, the DASH diet, that does not control cholesterol in the first place. Uh, Second of all, they eliminated dairy products from the beef diets. And, of course, dairy products are very prominent among things that will raise cholesterol. So uh, they were trying to make beef look good by eliminating dairy. Um, Second of all, they added uh, seven times the recommended daily amount of fiber to their uh, bold and bold plus beef uh, diets. And, of course, fiber also helps to lower uh, cholesterol. So in addition to using using a wrong comparative uh, diet, they... um, they fixed the content of their diets with beef to lower cholesterol, and then they attributed that lowering to the beef in the diet. So um, although they call it research, it's really um, propaganda. It's advertising for the uh, beef 
industry. The study was uh, manipulated, and in the current vernacular, we would call this fake news. Uh, we also believe that it violates Texas law, specifically the Deceptive Trade Practices Act that I mentioned in the first part of our discussion, and that's why we filed a complaint with the Texas Attorney General. And we think it comes down to the fact that the Texas Beef Council is saying to the physicians and citizens of Texas, we want you to eat beef. Um, we're going to use this study that we manipulated to uh, try to convince you that it's safe to do that. And uh, what they're not saying is we'll have more heart attacks, you'll have more strokes, you'll get fat, you'll develop diabetes, but uh, the beef producers will get rich. And um, we don't like that. That makes us mad. And that's why we have filed this consumer complaint. And what is the Attorney General likely to do with this? Well, we've already heard from the Attorney General, and they are um, going to uh, investigate the specifics of our complaint. We laid out everything I told you in in much more detail about um, how this is... um, this is a total misrepresentation of the truth about the relationship between beef and cholesterol. And um, they have said that they will investigate this and make a determination. Now, like most states and the federal government, once an investigation like this begins, they will not discuss the details um, with you or with anyone until they've come to a conclusion. So. We don't have any indication where that, when that may be. We will try to keep track of when it's expected to be completed. I'll certainly uh, get the word out uh, when we know what happened. You know, this is Texas, uh, Peter, yep. and there is a presumption, not only among the public, but uh, among elected officials, that um, we should have a protective attitude toward our beef industry, which is. Um, a major um, money-producing industry for the state. And so we have a lot to overcome here, but our scientific argument and our legal argument, this was prepared by our attorneys, um, are very solid. And we don't see how uh, a favorable decision for us can be avoided. But as I said, this is Texas. We'll just have to wait and see. Dr. Pittman, what's the latest on the effectiveness of uh, whole, healthy, plant-based diets in helping diabetes and hypertension compared to the standard medical recommendations? Uh, Well, thanks for asking that. That's a great question. Um, The Physicians Committee has actually been involved in some of the comparative studies, um, some of which have been uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health. Um, comparing plant-based diets, vegan diets, uh, with uh, standard American diets and looking at uh, the uh, comparative outcome regarding cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, body weight, uh, body mass index, and all these predictors of adverse outcomes. And I'm I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but I'll, I'll say for your listeners' benefit, They have all shown that when uh, people adhere to a plant-based diet, 
and they get uh, meat and dairy and eggs and related substances, uh, animal substances, out of their diets, everything gets better. Blood pressure gets better, cholesterol, um, risk for heart disease, uh, risk for certain cancers, particularly of the GI tract, but also breast cancer and some others, they all get better. And um, one of the, one of the uh, uh, strong arguments uh, for a plant-based diet and the reason that once our um, study subjects have gone on the plant-based diet, they, they have in high percentage stayed on it, is that all the side effects are beneficial. Uh, you lose weight, you have more energy, uh, you recover uh, quicker from exertion, uh, you can do things that you couldn't do before, like bend over and tie your shoes. You can get off your blood pressure medicine. You can reduce or get off your uh, cholesterol and uh, diabetes medicine and your risk for heart attacks and strokes and uh, related cardiovascular problems declines very rapidly. The, the bottom line is that uh, when you look at these studies, all peer-reviewed studies in um, uh, reputable journals, including the New England Journal, the Journal of American Medical Association, uh, uh, major nutrition journals, um, the evidence is very clear. And it's uh, completely the opposite of what the Texas Beef Council is trying to sell to uh, Texans. And that is that by getting that stuff out of your diet, by eating a plant-based diet and avoiding animal fats and nitrogenous substances that, and, and heme iron that are, in, um, that are in animal products, you greatly improve your health and decrease the likelihood that you will have one of those chronic debilitating diseases that uh, makes you sick and shortens your life. Well, Dr. Pippin, I really enjoyed uh, catching up with you. We need to do this more often, and uh, please contact us when you hear something uh, out of the Texas complaint, okay? We sure will. That's Dr. John Pippin, Director of Academic Affairs from PCRM. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. And I want to thank you for joining us today. This is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.